Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 325. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 325 you're listening to. My guest today is Jason LaRocca, producer, engineer, and scoring mixer, whose work can be heard on games such as Assassin's Creed Valhalla and Fortnite, as well as movie series such as Netflix's Black Mirror, Bill and Ted's Face the Music, and Paddington, among many others. Jason comes to us as a referral from our good friend Steve Genowick, and we have a great conversation that I'm looking forward to bringing to you. So, Jason LaRocca, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about maintaining a presence. What I mean by that, in essence, is maintaining a web presence. I think the things that are going to come to your mind immediately is going to be social media. So all the usual suspects, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. But it also includes a website. I know that some of you might think, hey, man, it's the 21st century. We don't really need websites anymore. You know, that is one way to look at it. So I'm going to politely disagree with that statement. I think having a website is still still an an important thing. It's a place where you control the message and the content that you put out. And that content, of course, is samples of your work. It could be record covers and the credits on those records. It could be snippets from those records, depending on your relationship with the artist and the legalities of that. It's also a place where maybe you can field contacts from people, you know, potential work. By having a simple web form so people can get in touch, you might be surprised. You will get emails from people about working. So a website, I think, is still a relevant thing. These days, what is pretty popular is things like Linktree and Solo.io. You know, you've got a lot of different things you want to share with people. And in the context of, say, Instagram, you're always wanting to provide new links. You know, you post a picture and you say, hey, my new website's up, but you want to, you know, provide a link, but you also want to provide a link to some of the other stuff that you're working on. These Linktree type things are essentially a landing page with a series of links on them that can take people in different directions depending on what it is you're trying to highlight. Case in point, the Working Class Audio Instagram page contains a link that will take you to a page and that will give you a few options. It will take you, of course, to all of the places that you can get the podcast, like like Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. But it's also got links to articles about the podcast, interviews that I've done on other podcasts, as well as a link to the Working Class Audio website. It's kind of a catch-all for all of these things and it's just simple links with icons not a lot of fanciness just cut straight to the point you may have a lot of places where you want people to have the opportunity to check out what you do i'll include a link in the show notes to the thing that i use for not only working class audio but for you know mapudro.com or mapudro related audio type stuff for mixing and mastering the other parts of having a presence are if you're being asked to contribute to audio publications or maybe you're being interviewed on podcasts you know youtube channels, live streams, etc. Those are things you might want to consider as well. The more people see that 
you are out there, you have experience, and you're doing things, not only does it show people that you're a credible audio professional, but it also establishes that presence, that awareness of you, so that if people are thinking about where they can get knowledge from about that particular thing that you you specialize in, whether maybe that's post-production, maybe that's uh, mixing or mastering, they can find you, and maybe something you've said resonates with them, and they think, oh, yeah, let's get that person. Clubhouse, of course, is the new trending social media thing, audio-based thing. Currently, as I record this, it's iOS only, invite only. It's essentially audio-based social media. You have rooms where you have moderators and speakers, and then you have an audience. People create rooms so that they can talk about any particular topic. And let me tell you, the topics range not just in the world of audio, for sure. There's everything under the sun that you can imagine. You might want to check that out. The thing about Clubhouse is it presents a very unique opportunity for you to contribute to the conversation, but also just sit back and listen and learn a lot of new things too. And I'm sure you're going to hear about it more and more. So here's the, here's the quandary. If you're a bit of an introvert and you don't like talking in public, are these things effective for you? This raises the question, will it translate to you getting work? Will it translate to your bottom line? There's two schools of thought. There are those that feel that if they just put themselves out there, people know about them, doors will possibly open. And then there are those that say, well, I did this and I didn't see any click-throughs on my website, therefore this isn't working. You gotta be in it for the long term. You gotta be in it for the long game, right? You can't expect overnight results, but if you're out there and people can find you and you want more work, then this is a totally free answer. A website it's not going to cost you that much. Uh, social media costs you zero. Getting invited to or joining or making yourself available to join conversations on YouTube or Clubhouse or any of these types of things like podcasts, that also is effective. Think of all of the people that have been on Working Class Audio, some of which you didn't know about before until you heard them on the show. They made themselves available to be on this show so that the awareness of those people is there. So these are things to consider. And I get it that, you know, I'm a bit of an extrovert, so it's easy for me to do it. It's a no-brainer. If you're an introvert and you don't like talking in public, that's tough. So maybe there's some other methods. Maybe you have a website with a blog where you talk about what you're doing, but you can just, you know, write it out. That's a completely viable solution. Wherever you are, whether you're an introvert or an, or an extrovert, I highly encourage you to have a presence out there if it's more work you're looking for. And if you say, no, I operate totally on word of mouth, I get that. Word of mouth is fantastic, it's powerful, and it's it's probably the dominant method that most of my guests use. However, if you want to expand your reach and go beyond the confines of your circle of people that you operate in, having a presence out on the internet is a fantastic way to do that. Consider it, not gonna try to do the hard sell as usual, but something that I would like you to take into account and, and ponder. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable, you might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jason LaRocca here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you come to us by way of our mutual friend, Steve Genowick, who you've done some work with at Capital for Paddington, I think we were just talking about before we started. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Let's get to it. Before we get into the whole recording end of things, you are in a band called The Briggs with your brother, Joey. That's right. That... I'm going to make a major assumption here in that, in that you started in music long before you started into recording. Yeah, for sure. My parents weren't musicians, but they really loved music. And we had Beatles vinyl playing on record players when I was a kid. And that was kind of, you know, there was also a show called uh, Breakfast with the Beatles radio show that every Sunday they would just play Beatles songs all day. And we would play that and hang out and have breakfast and do work around the house and listen to it. So it's always like music listening was a big thing. And then for me and my brother, it kind of went the step further to actually pursuing music professionally. And we're two years apart. So we were pretty close and, and we had each other as kind of a way of keeping each other sane and busy. We didn't have a ton growing up, you know, it was like, you know, we were pretty humble little family. So we always found things to do of whatever reason. Music kind of escalated for us and that became our thing. But my parents weren't musicians. They just loved music. And that obviously had an impact on you guys. The act of listening to music and being aware that as a kid, 
did it drive you to be in school band or anything? We didn't really have... School band wasn't really our thing. We were more into edgier music by the time we got to really playing instruments. Like my dad actually did know one song on guitar. He knew Paint It Black by the Stones. And so he taught it to me. Actually, he taught it to me incorrectly. He taught it to me in a key that was easy to play with open strings in E, I think. But it wasn't actually, once I learned it correctly, I realized my dad actually taught it to me the wrong way. But we just found a couple of friends that could kind of bang on a couple instruments and and eventually started our own thing. But we were never, yeah, school bands. Actually, one thing we did do was was we had a vocal teacher who taught us in like sixth grade and she was amazing. And she actually, funny enough, get us some random gigs. Like we actually did a session for Toto once when we were kids in a studio. Like I think it was in Cherokee. Like we, I don't know, like, cause I didn't know studios at the time, but we did like a vocal session. We were like sitting there nine years old doing a little kids choir thing. And I don't think the song ever got used, to be honest. I don't even know what it was, but that was one of my first studio experiences <laughs> was doing this, doing this vocal session with our little kids choir from school. But that wasn't like, it musically wasn't like super exciting to me. I, I started to get into sort of heavier music. Like skateboarding was kind of my entry into like really getting into music. And so I had a, a friend who was a skateboarder and he was all into Metallica and DRI and like Operation Ivy and like these more ruckusy music, which of course wasn't what the school band was doing. So it was like, we didn't really know how to play our instruments, but I... I got a drum set from a friend for free and we set it up in the house and I got a guitar for like 50 bucks and, you know, learned how to play a couple of chords. And like my brother and I just sort of sat and listened to records and just sort of picked up what was going on on the records and did it all by ear. I got like a couple of guitar lessons and then from there I just self-taught myself. That was like when guitar tablatures just came out, like in the 90s. So you didn't have to know how to read music. And I, I used guitar tabs to learn all the Metallica records, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, which Billy Corgan's an incredible guitar player. So I, it was just by emulating it the best I could. And then eventually we went out and started playing the LA club circuit and that sort of thing. It was all DIY. There was never really like formal training, really. Were your parents ever driving any of that? Did they encourage it? Did they get involved or did they just leave you to your own process? They were really encouraging because my mom was forced to learn piano when she was young and she really despised that she was forced to learn an instrument and of course never really pursued it. And so she was always like, you know, if you guys really love music and this is what you want to do, I want to support it. Even though they didn't like the music we were playing. I mean, we were into stuff that they didn't quite get and thought it was angry and didn't make sense to them. But they were still <laughs> encouraging. My dad would actually, honestly, we had a Ford Taurus station wagon. Mm -hmm. We would put all our gear in the back of the station wagon and drive to the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard and play these pay-to-play gigs. And he was booking us the gigs and driving us down to the venue to load in, play the show, and then help us load out and drive us home so we could go to school the next day. What a great dad. Yeah, they were really supportive in that regard. That was how they were able to help, you know, like they weren't musicians themselves, so they didn't have anything that they could necessarily teach us about music, but they just supported us in our pursuit to 
find success or happiness because we wanted to do it professionally. And we did. We went and toured for six years full time, like 300 days a year. Wow. Yeah. So when did when did audio as a profession come onto your radar? Well, kind of immediately, actually, because we didn't have the money to go into nice studios and record. So like we would just pull favors where we could. We did an early recording with a friend who had a studio and we went in and recorded a couple songs over the period of a weekend. And it was awesome. It was such an incredible experience. And I immediately was A, very interested in what they were doing and B, thought this seems really intangible. And how can I help bridge the gap between getting a product out and and being able to sort of do it myself so that I didn't have to come up with all this money. And so at the time, there wasn't really much. There was no Pro Tools Digio. One hadn't even come out yet. So the digital audio workstation thing was really, you know, this was like early 90s. There wasn't really much that you could do in that regard. So the cheapest thing I could figure out was like an E16 Fostex tape machine a half-inch tape machine, and a Mackie 2408. That really bridged the gap between the home studio, the beginning of really being able to do things in a home studio and not having to spend a ton of money to go to a bigger studio. So I eventually saved up to buy a Mackie 2408, and that was when we started recording everything at home. As soon as I got that, it was like when I was 18, I worked all summer for my dad and made enough money to buy a 2408. And I didn't know how to use it really, but that was kind of what forced me in. It was like, well, if we want to make these recordings and sell them at shows and stuff, we could either spend $10,000 to go record it at a studio and maybe be happy with it or not, or we can spend $4,000 and do it at home and, and try and get good at this. And that was the path we took. Again, it was my parents were really supportive, really did what they could to help me, but I pretty much earned it myself. And it wasn't because I necessarily wanted to be an engineer. I just thought this is getting me to be able to produce music without having to get other people involved and worry about schedules and money about other people. We could just start kind of doing it ourselves. It was always, I guess, the DIY mentality that kind of drove me. Yeah. It's interesting to me, just reflecting back on that time period, the Mackie 2408, the modular digital multitracks ADATs and Tascam D88s and, and those those Fostex and Tascam reel-to-reel machines. It's really amazing like how that change in technology can spur so much more music to be created yep. because of the cost factor where you guys bought the 2408 and... And did you buy the Fostex machine? Yeah, I bought the Fostex machine off of a friend of my father's who had a home studio, which home studio really was, it was quite quite an elaborate setup, actually. He had really beautiful setup. And he had an E16 tape machine that he was selling for 1500 bucks. Hmm. So for my dad's friend's connection, we we went down and bought this thing from him. So that was how I found that. And that was a quick bridge from from that to ADATs to Tascams to then eventually Pro Tools. It, it happened pretty quickly. The E16 was a really cool thing, but for a hot minute. And then it was just like, well, no, now we've got ADATs. And then it was like, it all moved very quick. Yeah. It was the gateway drug. But it was the gateway for that. It was like, wow, we can have the Studer kind of thing, <laughs> 16 tracks, which was a lot, and you could have it in in your own home. And it was like, well, it sounded like crap. I mean, it was, you know, we were recording in our bedroom, but we had the means to basically do something. And I would print my mixes to a cassette. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. 
Right. Some of the things that we did were, they were like mastered off a cassette. Do you still have those multi-tracks of the, the early days? Yeah, I do actually. I have them in my garage. I don't know if they still work, but they were actually, we, we got tape from, my dad always knew these people because he was in the home inspection business. So his job was basically meeting people all day, going to people's homes, usually, and often wealthy people, people in, in sort of the nicer areas of LA to go into their homes and check them out, check their foundation and roofing and all that stuff for just the basic condition for somebody who's buying a home. He would tell them, this is what your house is, is like. There's just, it's all looking good. Go for it, buy the house. So he he was always meeting all these people like studio owners, executives, and all these people. So there was this one person he met who just had a pile of old tape, half inch tape. And so he grabbed it, put it in the back of his car. And, and that was what I recorded to. It was like if after I hit record and you kept playing, there was like weird random songs on the, on the tapes. They were all stuff we got for free. <laughs> And I still have them. When you say he grabbed them, I assume that he was, they were given to him. <laughs> oh, they, no, the, sorry. Yes, of course. I didn't put that in there. Yes. No, he was, they would just say, hey, if you want this, go ahead. Okay. It's in the garage. Take it. So he would, <laughs> he would just get these random things sometimes for free from people who were just like, we're selling the house. You know, we're just going to throw it away or there was no eBay or anything, Craigslist or whatever. So people would just put it out on the curb. He's like, if you want it, if your son wants it, go for it, take it. So we would just get these random things sometimes. Would any of those strange sounds wind up in your recordings? Yeah, sometimes there was pretty bad time code bleed. <laughs> I didn't understand how that worked because we would record on the first couple tracks and it's like some, some of the half-inch masters were two tracks. So there would be a giant tone on eight tracks, on, on, on all 16 tracks, right? Because it was a left and a right, basically. But I was putting it on a 16-track tape machine. So it shows up for me on 16 tracks of audio, this test tone. And so we would record the first two or three tracks and it would be like a quiet intro or something. And I would wonder why there was this little tone and note in the recording and eventually figured out that it was because of the track bleed from the tape we were reusing and we weren't wiping out the whole tape. We were just doing it track at a time. So there would be this test tone on the other track right next to it bleeding into mine, which I eventually figured that stuff out. But yeah, it was all from trial and error. Was it Simpty time code? There were some with Simpty time code too. Yeah. Oh, that's there were some just with, just with tones, tape tones, and then some with Simpty time code. Yeah. Like printed on everything. Yeah. On all the tracks. That tone of Simpty is like a distant cousin of the dial-up modem in terms of exactly. irritation. Major irritation and regretful nostalgia. <laughs> Did you ever progress into recording other people's bands with your stuff? Yeah, but it, it didn't get into anything really major. There was other local bands that we would play with that found out that I had a setup at home and we would record for them. I did like, yeah, three or four different bands right away, like right after we had set up our thing and, and got our first little demo out, there was a couple of bands that went, wow, this is amazing. Can we record at your place? And so eventually we started just having a bunch of bands and random. At one point, my brother and I, my brother was playing drums and I was playing bass for the distillers for like a hot second. And we had the distillers over and Brody Dale was sitting there with like her crazy lip and nose piercings and her breasts practically hanging out with her torn shirt. And my mom was just like, who, whoa, who, this is great. Who, who are, are these people? Who are these people? Like <laughs> she looks insane. So it definitely got kind of funny because we didn't have like a lounge for bands to hang out in. So they would hang out in the kitchen and 
my mom would make them food and stuff and we would <laughs> we would just be like cool we're ready to record now and we'd bring them in but it was we were all kind of there in a small space so it was definitely kind of weird but yeah it turned into recording bands and then eventually we ended up on tour so that stopped eventually but in the beginning stages when we were just local in LA we were just recording all the bands we were playing with basically so fast forward me through the years where did this recording thing progress for you I wanted to get a job in a studio because I didn't know where my music career would take me as far as a musician was concerned. I obviously thought this would be great if I could do this professionally and make a living at it, but what if? And so I thought, well, I'm decent at engineering. I can figure it out enough to get a recording done and, and do this. I thought maybe I should pursue it. And I tried to get into a couple of studios and get an internship job, but because I hadn't gone to engineering school, it was pretty hard. I didn't have any references or recommendations from anybody in particular. So I really just was kind of self-promoting myself and it really didn't go very far. So I kind of was giving up at it and thought, well, hopefully the band thing happens because I don't know what my other career would be. But a friend of mine had actually called me and we both played shows together. He had a band and I had a band. We were playing the local shows in LA and he knew that I had a, a setup at home and said, I'm an assistant for a composer and I'm leaving the job and I know you've got some engineering skills and I thought maybe you guys might like to meet. And I said, absolutely, that's incredible. And I said, who is it? And he said, his name is Mark Isham. Huh. And, at, and at the time, <laughs> I didn't even know who that was. I thought, okay, let's do it. I don't know anything about film composing, but let's meet him. And, and it was a little intimidating because I didn't really feel like I was prepared to offer him anything that was going to be useful to him at all, except that I had some engineering skills. So I went and I met him and I did an interview with him and he said, well, you're great. I like your moxie. I like the fact that you've done this whole DIY thing and you've got a home studio set up and that's really great. He's like, I've got a whole slew of, of interviews I'm doing this week and I'll get back to you and I'll let you know. And I thought he's never going to get back to me because I'm not going to compete with these Juilliard kids who are coming in and they, of course, have all the panache and everything that I don't have. So I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. I actually called him and I said, can I just like help you out? I mean, you don't have to hire me. It doesn't have to go anywhere or whatever. I just said, can I just show up and just help out? So that's what I did. I just started showing up to his house and was cleaning things around the studio and just being there, basically, whatever I could do to help. And after about a week, he said, listen, I've interviewed a lot of people and I thought about this a lot. And he said, I like the fact that you're showing up here and you're just doing whatever we ask you to do with a smile on your face. And, and I, I like that attitude. It's like, you should stay. And that was basically how I got in the door was I hoped and prayed basically that it would work out. And it did. And that was, I've known him now for over 20 years. I have him to thank for a lot of things. And that was a really major turning point for me. And I still had the band and was still pursuing music as a musician and as a songwriter. But this is kind of what set me with a really solid potential other career path that was like really exciting. And of course, I was so enamored with the whole film scoring world. It was like, I, I ate it up. I was just like, this is so incredible. The whole scope of everything, recording orchestra to mixing in surround and hmm. going to these incredible studios, Paramount Stage M when, when it was there and Todd Ayo when it was there in Los Angeles and the, all these 
fabulous musicians and everything. I thought, this is like next level. I mean, this one thing to have a punk band and be touring in a van, this was like, holy crap, this is movie magic, seeing it happen like this and who gets to have this opportunity. So I, I didn't take it lightly. I was really, really studious. I learned everything I possibly could as fast as I possibly could. And, and that's just kind of where it all started. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What are some of the, the key takeaways from Mark that you learned, whether it be technical or business or life? Someone like that has an impact on you. He's had a major impact on me. I think one of the biggest things with him is he's always putting, when it comes to a product a musical product. It is really about the emotion first and what emotion you, first of all, intend to deliver and whether or not that's being received and that everything else sort of falls behind that. Are you getting this? Is this the type of communication you're intending to deliver? Is it coming across? And whether or not something had a technical flaw or something like that, it's so secondary. And I think that changed a lot for me because I was very into minutia and always thinking, well, if something had a little click on it or a little noise on it or something that it was unusable and couldn't be the final take or something like that. And he was teaching me that it was really about the delivery of this thing and whether or not it's getting to the listener the way it's intended to from an emotional standpoint. So that that's how I look at things now. You know, I think if if I go, oh, shoot, did I have the wrong plug in on this or did I have something set wrong or that I have the the microphone not panned fully left when I knew it was supposed to be a, a mic that was fully panned left and I had it panned right instead or something like that. He's like, yeah, but did you cry when you listened to it? Yeah, I cried when I listened to it. Well, then good. It's done. <laughs> yeah. But he, that's just how he thinks. He's very technically intelligent and he's actually a really good engineer in, in his own right. But 
he really puts the right thing forward in terms of importance. And it took me a long time to learn that. I still feel like I'm learning that. I'll get stuck in something thinking, I've got to get this technically right. And he goes, well, no, but what is it that you're trying to achieve with this? And it, and are you? Good, then you should move on. So anyway, that, that's just one thing that I just feel like was was really big for me because these kids who come out of school are always really, really excited to show how much they know about things technically and the technology of it. And they learn quickly that there's the application of it and whether or not something produces results that's far more important. It's interesting that kids coming out of school, whether they're taught this or whether they just think that this is how it is, they almost think that that technical knowledge is their currency to get them in the door. Why no Pro Tools? Why no every key command on the planet? And many times it's not. I mean, it's a thought that crosses somebody's mind. Well, you know Pro Tools, right? Yeah. But if they can't hang, if they can't bring value to the situation beyond their key commands. Yeah, because they don't know how this all weighs in in the real world. It's like every bit of information is not as important as the other. There are certain things that are super key and super important and other things that really take quite a bit of a backseat. That's all from experience of putting something to practical use and seeing what things actually achieve results. Mm. A kid who knows all the key commands and pro tools, that's great. But then when he doesn't realize that you have to set the computer to not have the hard drive go to sleep after five minutes while you're in the middle of recording, that's something that maybe the person wouldn't know because they haven't had the real world experience of having it go wrong on them in the middle of a session. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So it's great that you know all these key commands and you're showing this to me, but are we really ready to do a session? Like, is this going to go well? <laughs> Those are the kinds of things that separate somebody who has practical knowledge and, and a way of really kind of putting the product first and somebody who's doting around with showing off key commands. It's, it's a big difference. And I think that difference is in is an experience in somebody who gets products versus somebody who doesn't. Somebody should open up a school where their focus is recording session boot camp and throw everything that could go wrong at them just to make them survive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when does a singer ever show up on time? And when does a producer never decide to throw out a change at you in the middle of a session, like changing the key here or changing the tempo or something that you need to know how to do fast and quickly? And whether or not you can mute and unmute certain tracks really quickly with key commands, yeah, of course, that's great. But can you do that? Can you give this producer what he wants in 30 seconds if he's throwing curveballs at you? Those are the kinds of things I think about now when I do sessions. It's like, what is everyone going to ask for? And try and think of what everybody's psyche is going to bring to this thing so that I'm ready for an answer on that, ready for an answer on that, and ready for an answer on that. And those are the kinds of things that the boot camp side of it is exactly what you're saying. It should teach this because this is from experience one way or the other is what you're going to have to learn. It's the interaction of you with these other people and knowing the way a producer thinks and knowing the way a director thinks and knowing the way a composer and singer think. They all have their different things that are important to them. And ultimately, you are the hub for it all. to make it all work. Makes me speculate whether or not first responders or people in the military would excel in audio. I know some people, Daryl Thorpe, a friend of mine and, and former WCA guest, he does work for the Foo Fighters and he's worked for Beck and, you know, he was in the Navy and it always makes me think like, what does military training or first responder training, medics or cops or any of that, are those people like just naturally geared for this kind of a thing? Because it's like, 
Okay, we're recording. Yeah, I can handle your nutty personalities. Oh man, 100%. And not only that, but the schedules, being available at any time of the day and night and not thinking for a second that you're going to just be nine to five with this thing, even though that's what everyone says. Because that's that's part of it too. It's like, you don't know when, when the wave is going to come. You don't know when it's going to be like, go time right now. We've got to go and we've got to do this. And I'm sure that aspect of it plays into it too, because that's another thing that these people have to be sort of alert to all the time. It's just, you're constantly always on in a way. Working with Mark, where did that take you? Because I'm leapfrogging here, but if you look at your website and I'll include that link in the show notes audience, I mean, I took one look at it. I was like, crap. Okay. This guy's working on a lot of heavy duty stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that some I've seen, some I haven't, but I definitely know about it. No, I don't play Fortnite, but I know what Fortnite is. I, yeah. I have two teenage boys. So how did you get to this point? What was the connector that got you here? I did a lot of early cold calling and emailing and stuff like that to people that I could find one way or the other. I would go to composers' websites or even band websites and email them material that I've mixed and tell them, who I am and what I've done. This was after I had already worked for Mark for some time because in 1998, I started working for Mark. And then in about 2004, I left my position with him at the studio to pursue touring full time. But as anybody knows who's toured in a band, especially a punk band or indie band or something like that, it is not going to provide you 365 days a year with, with the money you need. So I was trying to supplement it at first with side gigs and things like that when I was home in town. So I was just cold calling people. I was just trying to network it the best I could to find work to do and things to do when I was home from tour. And I got to know some people, met people on tour, bands and stuff like that, who I did some work for, recording for, mixing for, and eventually would find these little things. Like I had found this great composer in the early 2000s by the name of Jeff Cardoni, who's a successful TV composer. And he was doing a show called CSI Miami at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had emailed him and just said, if you need any help, I'd love to help you engineer some stuff. And I got in with him and started doing some engineering on, on CSI Miami, mixing for him on that. And that was one of my like early outside of the Aisham world's indie gigs that I got for myself as a scoring mixer. And I think once I started recording Once Upon a Time, which was an ABC show that ran for seven years, which was a live orchestral recording every week. I did that show with Mark Isham, and I met Peter Rotter on that show, who's a contractor for all the major orchestral recordings in Los Angeles. And he works with Hans Zimmer, he works with Mark, he works with James Newton Howard, all these other guys. And he and I got to know each other, and he was like, I have this guy who I think would be great for you. And he got me some gigs working with a couple smaller composers. And then eventually I met Lauren Balfe. I met through Peter and started just getting bigger and cooler gigs, but really just through the networking of it, of just meeting people and getting to know different people. It was a slow process, but it was, I'm a a go-getter. So I kind of go and I, I like to stay very busy. So I like to find work and think, this is cool. What else can I do? What else can I go and get? So it isn't that I'm not satisfied. I'm always satisfied. I just like to do a lot. I just like to be very busy. And so why I have two mix rooms now, because we have things in various stages of, of the process. And I like to keep things really super busy around here. That's just my personality. So it all slowly worked up, just meeting different people. And then that's how I met Panar Toprak, who did the music for Fortnite, was through just, I think I just cold called her too. I'd reached out to her and said, 
said, I love your work. Would you like to come meet? She came down to the studio and we hung out. And then I didn't hear from her for a while. And randomly she called me up and said, would you like to mix this new video game called Fortnite? I didn't know what it was. (laughs) And so as soon as it came out, with the music that we did for it, it was an instantaneous phenomenon. It was not something we knew at the time. It was almost like a random thing. She called me and said, would you like to mix this? And we did it and it was put out of sight, out of mind. So I think that's that's some of it. It's just, I'm just journeying around, meeting lots of fascinating people. There's so many fascinating people in this world and and in the band world too. Like I met Nick Urata, who's who did the music for Paddington. He's the lead singer and guitar player for his band called Devachka. Oh. Uh, yeah, and they did the music for, for Little Miss Sunshine, which was one of my, first of all, favorite films and also really loved the score and loved his music for it, which he did with Michael Dana. I somehow found his email and I just hit him up and I just said, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Love your music. If you ever need anything, let me know. That was it. And he responded to me and said, actually, you know what? I, I have something I need next. <laughs> or what's your schedule next week? And we're great friends. We we hit it off. And aside from the work we do together, we're actually really good friends. So it's just, I'm just kind of always seeking out new people to to hang out with, be friends with, and, and work together with, collaborate with. Basically, your role, just if I have, I didn't even make this clear at the beginning of the interview, you're a scoring mixer producer, engineer, but you're a scoring mixer. So when it comes to films or, you know, when we're talking about Fortnite or Bill and Ted face the music, you're mixing the music for these productions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a strange job that I find myself trying to explain to people and usually seeing blank faces. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's not really very different than doing engineering and mixing for a band or a pop artist, it's just that people don't realize it's a job. People don't realize that this is actually something that people do for a living, mixing music that is the underscore of a film. But just so I'm clear, when a film is being mixed, my understanding is is that there's a person who's mixing the music, somebody's working on the dialogue, effects, There's different roles, a group of mixers mixing a film simultaneously. Are you in that group or are you mixing something that is then handed to that group? Well, the history of it, as far as I'm aware, is that the music mixer job for a film was largely part of the job of the dubbing mixer, which is the guy who takes the dialogue, the music, and the effects and puts them all together. And when music was a simpler element, in other words, just mono recording or a stereo recording or something like that. Once it was recorded live, it was more or less done. There wasn't much you did to mix it after that. And this would go to a dubbing mixer who had the music and had the dialogue, had the effects, maybe some Foley, and mixed all that together. But now things have gotten far more advanced, far more complicated that the music mixing for a film is its own dedicated job. And yes, its own separated thing from the final mix of when you're putting the dialogue and the music and the effects together. Because there's so many tracks, there's so much elaborate production on these things that it really is its own dedicated job to take two to three weeks to mix all of this material and get it signed off and approved by the composer and then give it to the dubbing mixer to play into the final mix with the dialogue. But it's not just a stereo mix, you're, you're, it's stems. No. Yeah, it's a stem, it's always a stem mix. In other words, you've got 
a 5.1 master of low drums, a 5.1 master of high, mid drums, etc., and then a 5.1 master or a 7.1 master of strings, of brass, of woodwinds, of percussion, Jeez. of vocals, of choir, of electric guitars, pads, pulsing pads, anything really that's in the score has to basically be its own separate element that when you play all these elements together, it is basically a stereo mix for lack of a better description, but it's an elemental mix. You can mute anything you want. You can change the volume of anything you want, but if you play it at Unity, it's the intended presentation of the composer. Okay. So to make these mixes, they're often 700 or more tracks very easily because your strings are recorded separately, often on two or three recordings of just the, you know, the short strings are played separately from the long strings. And so once you get all of these recordings piled up on top of each other, they all have 50 microphones capturing the sound in the room for each part of the orchestra that's been recorded separately. So you've got hundreds of tracks just with your orchestra recording. And not only that, they have to be then printed to their own stem so that the dubbing mixer can have control of it if he or she needs it. It's a lot to wrangle in for a dubbing mixer who has to be doing dialogue and doing all this other stuff. So now this is really, it's its own world. It's its for a scoring mixer. It's for somebody who's just mixing the music to organize all this, mix it all, get it all sounding right, and then deliver it to a dubbing mixer so that they could just basically, in theory, put it at Unity and, and play it in. And that's what you, you do. You do all the mixing and the prep to hand off to the final. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So talk to me about the economics of this gig. First of all, I'm under the assumption that there's enough work that you are surviving and long-term it, it, it's sustainable. Yeah. I've basically found that I say yes pretty much to everything. <laughs> so yeah. the survival success for me has been say yes to everything. And by that, I mean in our world, the schedules are probably the, the most difficult part of the job. And because you think the beginning of March is going to be this movie and the back half of March is going to be that movie. And then suddenly that one in the beginning of March isn't quite ready yet. They need to do some visual effects changes. And now suddenly you've got both movies happening at the same time, but you're needing to do them both. It becomes a challenge as far as making that work. But part of the problem is that there's a lot of production now that's done for us for scoring mixers that is flat fee out of a, a composer has a fee for the score to produce it. And it's really just a set amount. It isn't, okay, well, we'll pay you hourly for this amount of time or something like that. And that's that's been a bit of a shift lately over the last, I would say, five years, but probably longer, really. But that's become more and more that way, where you really just are doing a project for a flat fee. And sometimes those are challenging fees. They aren't what we've come to be used to as far as budgets. But I found that economically it works out to have two rooms for me, to have mixing going on in two rooms. I'm hands-on. I mix all the material that comes out of here. But there's printing, which takes tons of time. There's preparation. There's editing. There's cleaning up recorded parts. There's all these other things that can be done that I can oversee and have my assistant help me do or have another engineer help me do. So what has worked for me is just like having multiple rooms going and being able to facilitate everybody's project for whatever budget it is and just going with it and not going, oh, shoot, this budget isn't working. It's half what I would normally make. It's like, well, this is what it is. And I like working, so I'd rather work than not. 
So the pandemic has had something to do with this too. It's become more work to do the same job and for really no different amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it has been a little bit more challenging lately, I guess, in terms of the economics of it. But what's worked for me has just been basically trying to find out what in the process I can delegate between the rooms so that I could always focus on what's needed right now, what I could be mixing. And if I don't need to be mixing it, if it could be printed, I could have it be printed in the other room, you know, that sort of thing. This is kind of the way I've been able to make sense of it because it's been a little bit challenging in some ways. So that's a pretty hefty investment in gear because if I'm correct, you have two rooms with identical setups? Yeah. So I have an HDX3 and three UAD Octo cards, one UAD quad card, and I don't use any outboard gear. So it's really mainly that and then my speakers. So I have that in both rooms. Okay. I have basically every plugin known to man, a pretty souped up UAD setup, an HDX3, and I have fourth cards if I need to go there for both rooms. So yeah, it is. It is expensive. Yeah. But I think that it's more of a long-term thing. It's like, I don't see the work going away. And this is the mm-hmm. way I've been able to solve the problem of schedules being difficult. And it's been the way of solving budgets being difficult because I can not necessarily go, oh, this is the one gig I have this month and the budget's not great. So it's not going to pay my monthly nut. I can diversify it various ways. And so that has worked out, although it is, yes, a long-term solution. It's costing a lot of money. I mean, these the, I have the new Mac as well, which is great. Fantastic computer. So that's really all I need. I stay pretty much in the box and I have some outboard gear in A. I do use modular equipment, which I use sometimes to do mangling and, and really interesting sound design and stuff like that as part of my mixing mm-hmm. for certain scores. But I render all that. So if I do something like that in A, it gets recorded and rendered and it can show up in B. So it's never something I have static and open as a live element. If I use any hardware, I always print it. So A and B are essentially identical and all in the box. And if I do do some hardware stuff in A, it's really only momentary. And I record it in as soon as I get the sound I like. Tell me about your work-life balance and how you make this work with your family. Well, the basic philosophy that works for me is do work whenever you can, As soon as something's available, do it right away. Don't wait. And then I buy myself time that way. I think if I get something from a client at 11 o'clock, I'll go and I'll, I'll mix it because I know that tomorrow might be something different and then I'll have two things I need to do at one time and I can't. So when I just do things that come to my plate and get them out the door as soon as I possibly can, it buys me time with my family and I can go and hang out at the park and play baseball with my son or do something like that. It's never easy. <laughs> I think it sound easy, but it's not. I mean, it's it's definitely been a challenge in a lot of ways to kind of figure out, well, how can I break away and see my family when things really are, in fact, almost happening at 24 hours a day in this studio? One of the things that's helped me too has been all write up certain functions that I can do as like a really delineated step-by-step hat right up. Like this is this is what you do. You start here, like printing, for instance. I have a very detailed write-up for how you do it that is fail-safe because I've written it and I've applied it myself and I know that it works. So it takes into account any possible thing that could go wrong. Printing is a big thing for me that I used to take a lot of my own time to do that now that I can have my assistant do it and I fully trust him, we've tested it for 
years now, actually. And he's got it down so well that I know that I can trust him to do that. So there's certain functions that I can really trust other people to help me do in my studio that also buy me some time. Yeah, it's just whatever I can do, whatever I can do to chip away at that. It's difficult. Here's a conundrum that I'd love to hear your opinion on. So you're you're paying rent on two rooms. Yeah. Rent is inevitably going to go up over time. Yeah. You're paying an assistant. That assistant's going to ask for a raise over time. Sure. What do you do when the budgets stagnate, and how do, how do you handle that? I would rather do the work than make the money, I think is ultimately what it's going to come down to. So if at the end of the day means that the ledger shows zero, but my assistant got paid, the studio got paid, and the client got the product that he or she wanted, that's okay with me. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my business model at the moment. And so I would rather have the work and I would rather be getting the product that people want and achieving that goal than necessarily having this look great on paper. Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) Well, do you try to streamline the process? Because you talked about writing out the steps for printing. Yeah. Are you always trying to figure out ways to work smarter and faster? Yeah, I am. Every time I do a project, I learn something from it. And it's mm. it's really strange because I feel like, ah, oh, man, I'm doing this constantly. I've got this so down and it's like, it's going to be flawless. But there's something I learn every time about the process, how I could speed it up and how I can get to the finish line faster and trim the fat, as you say. So I'll usually take an hour or two at night, like after I've done everything and I'll kind of look through the project I just did and look at things that I could have done faster and quicker and better. And I just kind of try and roll the momentum of each project into the next so that, you know, like there's templates that I have that are at this point super locked in with great sounding reverbs, great sounding EQs. And I try and really roll that into the next as best I can on every project so that that's a big part. In the past was a big part of the project was getting the sound right, building the console, building all the routing, building all this stuff from scratch. And that would take a lot of time. And there's projects sometimes that can afford to pay for that time of like a week of setup or a a couple days of setup of me just building the sound of something. But that's so rare now. It really is like when somebody calls you to mix something, the time on these things is crazy. It's so fast, the turnarounds. So I like to just be ready and I build my mix kind of into the next mix. It always changes sonically, but there's a lot of really cool basic things that I go, oh, this would be great to have a 5.1 delay on on my stem master for strings or for this or for that. I've got all that built in now to my template. So I've got really, I could just throw a fader, an auxiliary fader up and I'm sending to four or five different sounds. I love that, that I don't have to go searching for it. I can just have all these different reverb and delay sends off of any of my instruments and they're all sounding exactly how I want. They're all panned where I want in the room. They're all going down the right stem masters. So this is a thing over time that I've built up that has been a major part in helping trim the fat for me in terms of economizing on the time and and keeping the sonic integrity exactly where I want it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've known this. It's it's in the brain somewhere. 
But what I've learned from you today is when the work comes in, just go do it. Because as you say that, like I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I've got three different clients mixes right now that I've, I'm juggling and I'm going to need to just get on the ball a little quicker. So I'm going to take that piece of advice to heart. And from now on, <laughs> the minute I get the song, I'm just going to mix it and get it out the door. I mean, it's weird things like washing my car or maybe even sometimes eating. I'll go, that's something I'm going to do when I know this is mixed and approved, but I'm going to mix and get this approved right now. And I know that I was going to go do something else, but I'm going to wait on that. I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to send it and I'm going to get approved. Then I'll go while I'm waiting, wash my car and go eat. And that's, these are little things I do throughout the day that all build up to like an extra hour or two of time that I can afford myself to go do something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the sort of do it right now mentality that has been something that I've learned over time is subtle, but mm -hmm. it's a very significant thing. Hey, man, this has been great. Is there any other place where people should check out what you do or is or is the, the website the hub? I think the website's the hub. I think it's got my Instagram and my Facebook and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm seeing it all here. This is great. Yeah. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and tell me about your journey. I know we had to leapfrog through a lot of it and there's a lot of details that happen along the way, but you've given us a lot of food for thought. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jason LaRocca here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, please stop on by iTunes and leave a positive review. That's all for me today. Gotta thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>